it's nice to be back. I am so grateful for the pastors that we have on staff that have been able to handle uh, the pulpit ministry while I was gone, but I was walking around this morning praying, saying, I'm just, it's good to see your faces. It's nice to worship with you. I've been excited to share the word with you, and today we're going to talk about this little topic called the rapture of the church. And if that doesn't get you excited, then you're on the wrong side. And we're going to have to take care of that before the end of the service. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you just to grab them and, and you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll, I'll read that in, in just a moment. But I have a, a son-in-law that's in the military. Many of you know he's in the Air Force. And so my daughter and uh, children have had the experience of what we have seen many times on TV of waiting at an airport when a big military transport plane comes flying in with those who have been deployed and watching the families as they line the runway or the building where this reunion is going to take place and as the soldiers men and women who have been serving our country step off that plane and then they come to attention and then there's this moment when their commander dismisses them and I have seen as my grandchildren take off, even though every uniform looks just the same, they somehow know dad's face. And they're running to jump into his arms, and my daughter gets to hug her husband, and they have these great reunions. And I don't know about you, but that brings tears to my eyes just about every time I see it. And as I begin to try to place into an aspect of understanding for us what this reunion will be like for us, if you take the emotions of that and multiply it by a million, you might be able to get just a little bit of a sense of what it will be like for us when we are transported to be with Jesus in the air, when we get to see our loved ones who have gone before us, knowing that this time there will never be another goodbye. And we'll get to do that forever and be with the Lord forever. Now, I told you that after 24 weeks of expository preaching on the book of Revelation that, that I would circle back at the end of it and come back to address the subject that there have been so many questions on during this study, and that is, that is the topic of the rapture of the church and why I believe that the preponderance of the evidence of Scripture teaches us that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture of those that believe in Jesus Christ before the tribulation begins. And if you have your passage of Scripture with you, let me start today by just reading this, and then we're going to move forward. There, this is not going to be long, but I would encourage you to take notes. For those of you that are wanting to, how do I build uh, an understanding of why I believe what I believe? I believe that this will help you today. First. Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18 state, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, 
We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, be encouraged this morning with these words. Father, we are about to take a dive into your word. And we have come to understand that the only way that we can understand this in the depths of our soul and apply it and pursue it is with the help of your Holy Spirit who you told us would lead us and guide us into truth. There may be those here this morning who, in trying to read your word, don't understand anything because they've not yet come alive in the Spirit. So today I ask that you would do that transforming work within them that they would move from unbelievers into a relationship with Jesus Christ today and that the church today would rejoice at what your word has to say about our future. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A few days ago when I was in Missouri, my, my wife's parents and my parents live catacorner across the street from each other in the same retirement community in Missouri. Makes it convenient, makes it a little difficult for us to decide whose house we're staying at from night to night. But we were there this past few days, and my dad, in one of those days, said, hey, we have some business we need to take care of. Can I jump in the car and give me a ride? And so we did, and a few minutes later, we were standing in a cemetery together. And we were standing next to the headstone of my mother, who had died 14 years ago. Now, after my mom died, my, my dad had a friend that he had known since college, and her husband had passed away a few years ago, and God brought them together, and, and her name is Julie, and Julie is my bonus mom. And so my dad was saying, in the business of all this, I need you to know what we want done at the end. And I said, okay. So we're standing there, and, and for those of you that may be in a circumstance like, like us and we have some blended family, it gets a little interesting when, when you've got remarriages and, and people that may have died before. And so I'm standing next to my mom's grave my dad said, I'm going to be here right next to her. And then there was this box that was right next to that, and, and Julie is going to be cremated, and she wants her ashes there. And so he was wanting to make sure that I knew how everything was to be laid out. Any of you ever had to do any of that? If not, it'll come. So we're standing there, and, and dad points, and he goes, oh, by the way, son, uh, you see that headstone over there, the Perkins that are next to us? You remember them. They were missionaries in Africa. And I'm going, oh, oh, yeah. And then he turns to the other and goes, oh, oh, you remember them. These are the parents of your friends that you grew up with in youth group. You, you know them. And, and, and he just begins to make this circle around where they're, where my mom is at and where they're going to be. And he knew everybody. <laughs> they were all a part of the church or the ministry or the missions. And, and, and at that point, I just stopped and I started laughing, which, by the way, is what Christians do in cemeteries. And I, I just, I started laughing, and he says, what are you laughing? I said, Dad, can you imagine with me for one second what this place is going to look like when the rapture of the church takes place? It's going to look like a gopher hole war around here. And then we begin to just discuss some things that's related to that, and, and the joy that we have of being able to be joyful in a place that normally would bring sorrow because of Jesus. And the scripture that we just read this morning tells us some things, and this is not my sermon points, but I just want to highlight them for you. Number one, 
Jesus is coming himself. Number two, he won't come quietly. Did you notice that? He's not sneaking up on people quietly. Number three, Jesus will raise the dead, and I believe that all of the graves will be opened and dirt is going to be flying. Number four, Jesus will take every follower that loves him and knows him that is alive with him in the air. And then the scripture said, he's going to keep us forever. Don't know about you, that makes my day. That just makes my day. And I feel a thrill every time I think about that. But as we begin to look at the scripture this morning, we we understand that there are persistent predictions and prophecies in in the Old Testament and many places in the New as well that talk about the period of time that we know as the Great Tribulation. And and we have spent several weeks going through all of that. We understand that it is a time where there will be unprecedented horrors. There's going to be upheaval and persecutions and natural disasters and massive slaughters and political and and financial turmoil. And it's all going to take place, according to the Bible, in the period of time that I believe is after the rapture of the church and before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I will follow up again at another time and talk about the two separate events that that are being mentioned here. But many people today are, are, are beginning to ask questions that due to the spiraling chaos that is going on in our world today, they begin to wonder if maybe we're not on the threshold of that already, or if soon, if things keep going the way they are, that we as the church might somehow be trapped in this with no way of escape. And so this morning, over these next few minutes, I want to frame with you what the Bible has to say, and I want to talk, about, talk to you about where we will be, why it will happen, and what our response will be as a result of the things going on around us. But we need a biblical foundation for what we believe and why. So why do I believe that the rapture will take place before the Great Tribulation? I confess to you that for years and years growing up, and even early in my ministry, the reason I thought that is because that was the way I was taught growing up. In fact, I can't remember one Pentecostal pastor that I ever had that even questioned it. It wasn't until later on in my ministry when I had an individual challenge me with the thought that the church would not be raptured until the end of the tribulation that I felt I need to do some study so that I have a scriptural foundation to support what I believe to be true. And so let me share with you some points this morning that will help us in our Bible study and clarify our thoughts on the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The word rapture, as many of you know, is not found in the Bible. Neither is the word trinity, but we know it's there. And so just because the word rapture isn't there does not mean that the description of what's going to take place is not there. In fact, the rapture comes from the Latin word rapio, which is a description of a Greek word that is harpazo, which means to be taken away, snatched away, caught away, suddenly. And so while the word doesn't appear in the Bible, Paul talks many times from the aspect of this is going to happen. There's going to be a catching up, a taking away, a snatching of the church from the world. And the rapture of the church, the removal of the church before the tribulation is going to be a protective measure that God will use to keep his people from the wrath that he is going to unleash on an unbelieving world. You say, okay, well, what are, what are some of the things that we need to know? Number one, first point, the rapture is going to be a surprise. The rapture is going to be a surprise. The teaching and parables of Jesus urge us 
constantly at this stage of our lives and in this stage of our walk with God to be watching, to be urgent about what we're doing, to be alert, to be on guard so that we will not fall into a carelessness or a sinfulness that will danger our relationship with God. In Matthew 24, verses 48 through 50, the Scripture says, But suppose that a servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants, to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour that he is not aware of. In other words, the first thing that we need to know about the rapture is it's going to be a surprise. It's going to catch people off guard. So the encouragement to us is this. We who are believers need to be constantly busy about the work of God. We need to be doing what he has asked us to do and involved in evangelism and reaching out to people so that when he comes, he will find us doing what he has called us to do. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 4 state this. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Now, there are two words in this that I think are important for us to recognize, and that's these words. Peace and safety. When the world is crying out, peace and safety. When they think everything is okay, then the church better be on guard. Here's what's interesting to me. Do you believe that anywhere, whether it be at the initiation of the Great Tribulation or in the middle of it and certainly not at the end of it, there will ever be anybody that will be decrying to the world it's a place of peace and safety? And so if this is one of the the characteristics of the pre-tribulation rapture, we recognize that since there will be no peace and no safety in the middle of this, it must be that the rapture of the church takes place before the great tribulation. Notice further that it describes for us the people will be going about their regular daily tasks. There will be no separation between the believers and the unbelievers because the mark of the beast has not yet come. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 41, It says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, I'm looking around this room and I recognize that there are some of you that equal me in age and maybe you're a little older and you might remember all the way back to the 70s. There was a song that was written by a man by the name of Larry Norman and the song was titled, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Any of you remember it? I don't see a single teenager's hand. So let me just tell you what one of the verses says. A man and a wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise. She turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears. The other's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. 
There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. Now, if this event were to take place in the middle or at the end of the Great Tribulation, it is impossible that people would be going about their lives as if everything was normal because there will be nothing normal during the Great Tribulation. So we believe that this separation will take place before the Tribulation. We also know, according to Scripture, and Jesus emphasized this, that no one knows the day nor the hour except the Father. Now, I believe that Jesus, after He was resurrected, all that knowledge is His, but when He was on earth, He chose not to know. If we begin to put in place a timeline where we think, okay, three and a half years in, then all of us would have an idea. And so, because of the unknown nature of all of this, it makes sense for the church to expect a pre-tribulation rapture. Secondly, our protection is affirmed by promise. In fact, our protection is affirmed by the promise of Jesus Christ himself. When we were studying Revelation, when we were in the third chapter, the tenth verse, it says this, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. And there were a number of different words that are used in Scripture to, de de to describe the great tribulation, the hour of trial being one of those, that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. In other words, here is the promise of Jesus to his church. I will keep you from this. It's the promise of God. There's a trial coming on the whole earth. My church won't be there. It's his promise. So what do we know then of the promises of the Lord? Number one, our God does not break his promises. He never out-promises himself. He always keeps his promises. He told us that the church, if we kept faithful to him, would escape the hour of trial. Therefore, by his mercy and his love, he will remove us from the scene entirely when the tribulation comes. We won't be here. Oh, hallelujah. Thirdly, our protection fits with biblical precedent. One of the lessons that we learned in our study as we were going through Revelation is that there are patterns in Scripture that are important for us to notice, and it's wise of us to observe them. And while we know that God doesn't always do things the same way, the way He did something in one person's life may not be the way that He does it in yours, there are some patterns that we can learn how He addresses issues with and how he, can work, how he works that we can apply more broadly. So, let me give you one. First of all, Noah and the flood. In Matthew, we just read in the 24th verse, it says, As in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it's going to be at the coming of man. So he says, here's a pattern of something I've already shown you that will be repeated thematically for the church. Now, if you ever read in Genesis chapter 6, you will understand the, the account of the massive wickedness of the world that was growing so strong that God determined that judgment was necessary to wipe them out and start again with a holy remnant. But Noah, being the righteous man of his time, came before God and God spoke to him and said, listen, when I do this, I want you to know that because of your righteousness, I will spare you 
from the judgment upon the wicked that I'm going to have. And so before he could wipe everybody out with a flood, he gives Noah some building instructions. He said, I want you to build something. You don't know what it is. You've never needed it before. It's a boat. Noah obediently went ahead and did everything that God told him. And then there comes this verse in Genesis 7-1. It said, then the Lord said to Noah, at the end of all of this time, after he's built this enormous thing, get into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And then you get to verse 15, and it says this, and the Lord shut him in. I often wondered, for those of you that are good with construction, I am not, but for those of you that are, what it was like for Noah to build an ark and recognize I'm building a door that's so heavy and if I'm on the inside, don't know how we're going to close this thing, that we don't have a rope big enough. I'm, you know, I'm trying to think how we, and God just says, don't worry about that. Lord, you've given me such detailed instructions for everything. How can I not worry about the door? Don't worry about that. And we get to the end of this thing and the Lord tells him, now you just get in. Your job is over. I'll take care of the rest. And then I wonder what everybody was looking at and what they felt like when this door supernaturally began to creak as God slammed it in place and sealed it, and then rain fell. So God provided protection for the righteous before he executed judgment on the sinful and wicked. We also see this pattern repeated then in the Passover and in Exodus when Moses, under the direction of God, was, was leading the Israelites to freedom and he's having this conversation with Pharaoh and Pharaoh is hardening his heart against all this and the Lord says, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do one more thing and then they're gonna let you go, but here's what I want to happen. I'm gonna wipe out the firstborn of everything and the only thing that will keep you from being able to have that is the blood of a lamb on the door. And Exodus 12, 7 says, they are to take some blood and put it on the sides and the top of the door frames. Further on in that chapter in verses 12 and 13, on the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. I want you to know something. Isn't it good to be under the blood? Oh, hallelujah. That was as good as you're ever going to get me dancing right there. It's so good to be under the blood because the pattern had been set. And when the death angel came through, they were untouched because God prepared to save the righteous from the judgments. As we move on in this pattern, we get to Lot's protection in Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 18 is fascinating to me because it shows the negotiating skills of Abraham with God. And God is telling him, listen, I do not like the cities of the plain and I'm going to wipe them out. And so Abraham comes and says, listen, if we can find 100 people, would you save those cities if we can get to 100 people? And God says, you find 100 people and I'll, I'll say, okay, well, how about 50? And the more Abraham begins to think, the more he recognizes, I'm way overestimating any righteousness that can be found at this place. And so he keeps lowering the number and number, and he gets it down and down, and the Lord's going, yeah, you find that, man, we're good. And at the end, they finally recognize there is not enough righteous people there to save these cities, so God turns the tables and said, let's take the few that are there and get them out. And in Genesis 19, verses 15 and 16, it said, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry! 
Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. And he hesitated. He and his wife had something in common. And it said, the men grasped his hand. Now, for those of you who are parents who have ever had an unruly child, some of you, your kids are perfect. God bless you. <laughs> you recognize what it's like to have a child, particularly in the store. I love watching this. When a mother tells their child, no, you can't have that candy, boom, on the floor they go. I'm going to make you so embarrassed, mom, you're going to give me more than I asked for just to shut me up. And the mother says, oh, no, 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 not in this battle of wills. And the mother grabs that child by the hand and grasps them and drags them down the aisle. I get that image here in Genesis, that the angels literally grabbed them and drug them out of the city because the Lord was merciful to them. It then tells us in verse 29, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Now, Jesus has made it clear in his word to us that as in the days of Noah, as in the days of Lot, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So we have been given to us scripturally a pattern that before the wrath comes the salvation. And the apostle Peter explains it to us in these words. And and I'm only going to read just a part of this, but you can find this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. But it says this, If God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, delivered Lot, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under the punishment for the day of judgment. So what did Peter say? He was saying this. God knows how to get his church out of the way before the wrath comes. And then as we were looking at the book of Revelation, I remember making a point that in the first three chapters, in the first four chapters, we were discussing the letters to the churches. Do you know that in those first four chapters, the word church is used a total of 19 times, but there's not one time it's mentioned after the fourth chapter? And we, we talked about the time where John was caught up in the Spirit, and we said, I remember pointing out that there are many that believe that this is the symbolic aspect of the rapture of the church taking place here. I, I, I'm not certain that that fits perfectly, but I do believe that there is so much other evidence in Scripture that that would fit well. In other words, everything that we read about that scared us, all those beautiful dragons that we got to see, that the Lord is going to spare his church from that because he's going to rapture his church before the tribulation. Amen. And then the last point, our protection is assured by God's love. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, if you've never underlined this verse in your Bible, you need to underline it now. For God did not appoint us. Who's the us he's talking about? He's talking about the church. Those of us who have received Jesus as our Savior who are part of this, he did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Here's the important point. There are so many people that are saying, but we are living in such persecution, and it seems as if the church is, is getting ready. To, there's a difference between the persecution of the unrighteous on believers 
The Lord never said that we would escape that. In fact, he told us that we needed to persevere. That it may not be easy for the church in the last days of time. However, there's a difference between that persecution and the wrath of God being poured out on the unbelievers. People may try to punish us, but I'm glad I'm not going to be here when God throws out the punishment. So we understand the difference between the two things and recognize that we will persevere regardless of what anyone in the world may say about us or do to us because I have been written in the Lamb's book of life and that is worth more than anything that you can ever do to me. It's protected. Our protection is assured by God's love. There's two things that encouraged me. One was the salvation that's talked about here is an inheritance to us. And we shall receive it the moment that we are caught away. We will be changed. We will receive our new bodies. Which is why when I'm standing in that cemetery with my dad, going through the plans of what he wants to be done, I recognize that the cemetery for the Christian is a place of rejoicing. Because it's only temporary. (laughs) You see, you bury things you never expect to see again. You plant things you expect to see in a new dimension. The Christian, when we die, we get planted because I'm coming back up and I'm going to look better than this because God has a new dimension that he will be bringing us up in. Our protection is there. The other thing I noticed is the wrath that would be poured out on the darkness of this world. I cannot imagine the horror and the fear that will take place that will cover this world when the church and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we know it is removed. I've had people say to me, you know, Pastor, I'm going to live like I want, and I'm, I'm just going to be a tribulation saint. You know, all those, uh, I'm, I'm, you know what, if you can't do it now, can you, I don't think you can imagine what it will be like when the church is gone and everybody that's been praying for you is gone and the ministry of the Spirit is different. Worship team, would you please come? Our protection from the tribulation is assured by God's love. And it gets better and better. Paul assured his readers that once they become Christians, once we are walking in obedience to him, that we no longer need to fear God's judgment upon us when he said this in Romans 8.1. Therefore, just let this sink in. Therefore, there is now, now, today, this morning, living in the present, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, if you haven't been happy all morning, it's because you're on the wrong side. Because when I hear Jesus say to the church, There is therefore now, now, May the 2nd, 2021, that for those of you that have been living in fear, boy, God's punishing me. Oh, no, 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 no. When you come to Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. I don't know what you have told yourself about yourself. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror. 
I don't know what you say to yourself when, you're, when you're, you, you stand there and you're looking at yourself. But here's what I want you to know that Jesus is saying to you. If you have received him as Savior, you are no longer under condemnation. Nobody is condemning you. You are free. The chains are broken. It's been washed away. Everything you've ever done has been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And you stand as one who has the full inheritance of what Jesus Christ paid the price to give us. There is therefore now, when you walk out of here today, you shout it in Satan's face. There is therefore now no condemnation because I am in Christ Jesus. And then lift your eyes, church. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the King.